Amen. Let's pray. Lord, may our song be, Jesus is better. Lord, make, cause, send your Holy Spirit to work in my heart in such a way that I see Jesus as better. That the worth of the greatness of the glories of your promises stand out to me as more glorious than any toy, than any drug, than any thing that I could see. Lord, make my heart believe. And Lord, cause us to sing. Sing together how great you are. And Lord, as we open your word tonight, I pray that you would enable us to have our hearts open and our hearts freed and our hearts see how glorious you are so that we may rejoice. Lord, remove from us those things that would distract us from hearing your word tonight. Forgive us of our many sins and cause us to seek our solace and our joy in you so that we may have hearts that believe. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, I'm sorry, Chet. I'll let you get down. Thank you, man. Praise Jesus. One of the hardest things in the entire world is to take an honest look at your own heart. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Humanity generally falls into one of two categories in this regard. First, there are people <clears throat> like me who are way overly introspective and obsess on the smallest details of our wickedness of our souls so that we're blinded to everything else. You know, like, for example, the grace of God, the unconditional love, the fact that Christ died on the sins for all my Christ died on the cross for all my sins. And we're blinded by that because we don't look back up at the cross. Instead, we spend our time looking at ourselves. Then there are, on the other hand, those who blithely skip through life, not thinking about the wake that their thoughtlessness leaves behind. Of course, that's overgeneralizing, but those are the people who really annoy the heck out of me. Anybody else? With that? Okay. But actually allowing the Lord to have permission to go into the closet of our heart and then taking the time to listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say about what's in there. You know, that's about as painful as getting dirt in your eye, you know, that all you want to do is keep your eye closed, but you got to force it open so you can spray some stuff in there and get it out. It's painful. I hate doing it, but you know that it must be done. This pain, this anguish is exactly what Jesus commands us to endure at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. After preaching the most famous sermon in history, after revealing God's purpose for you, and that it is much deeper 
than the law. And it results in a righteousness, a completeness, a maturity, a wholeness that is so much infinitely better than the righteousness of the most punctilious observer of the outward law. After preaching this sermon, Jesus concludes with five illustrations, five sets of instructions that will guard your, guide your heart and mine as we seek to apply what we have learned in the Sermon on the Mount. Intentionally, purposefully, Jesus takes the stance of a master to his teachers wanting to warn us in no uncertain terms of the danger of failing to take seriously what he has told us in Matthew chapters 5 and 6. Here, Jesus frees us to take a hard look at our lives. This, in fact, is exactly Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Only if you are in Christ Jesus will you be able to take this command and apply it seriously. Only when you have already experienced the grace, the power of God to work in your life for good, the grace that you need to examine that which is dark in your heart. By the way, I need to say that I am preaching and applying this message to believers. If I were to take the time and seek to preach and apply it to non-believers, that would be a whole separate sermon. So I want you to realize that as you're looking, there will be some things that I'm not talking about here, but I'm talking to us. For the majority of people in this room, I have very good reason to believe we are in Christ, and so this message is for us. So let's, as we keep this in mind, let's look at our passage and see the images that Jesus uses so that you and I can take courage to look into our heart and seek to understand what he is saying to us so that we may joyfully glorify God together. Let's look beginning in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. My point is going to be to strive to enter the narrow gate. Verse 13. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. When Jesus says here the gate is narrow, he means by it to remind us that very few are willing to enter into the Christian life. What? You believe that a woman shouldn't have the choice over what's in her womb? How narrow-minded can you be? What? You don't think that marriage ought to be open to anybody and everybody always? How narrow-minded can you be? If you are narrow-minded in the right way, you might be on the right path. 
He then goes on. He talks about the way is hard. And Jesus here means to remind us. He means to tell us that even those who make it into the gate, many will fall by the side. Notice in Jesus' parable about the soils, how many of the soils reject the seeds. My friends, we are on a journey, Jesus is telling us, that is difficult at best. In fact, what we find is that it's impossible aside from the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you choose to walk with Jesus, you will find yourself constantly at odds with the culture around you. And that will be true if you're in the 21st century American culture or the 1st century Palestinian culture. Wherever you are, because men's hearts are against the Lord. Indeed, I think one of the main reasons why the church is less effective than we ought to be for the moment is because we have accommodated to the culture too much. If we're not different from the culture, why on earth would you get up early on Sunday morning and miss the football game? You and I are offered the chance here in Matthew 7 to examine our hearts because we need to see if our decisions are simply going with the flow because that's what everybody does and we're not even really thinking about it? Or are we considering the call of Jesus on our daily life in how we think, in how we value things, in how we react to the news of the day? Because if you and I are not thinking and valuing as the Lord describes here in the Sermon on the Mount, then we have very good reason to think that perhaps our heart is not right. But Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, gives us freedom. He frees us to take a hard look at our lives. And he continues in verse 15. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Key phrase. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. If you remember in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, Jesus says, do not judge. And you remember we talked about this a few months ago. His main point in that was not to condemn, not to belittle or dismiss or make someone else out to be less than human or less worthy than I am. And that's Jesus' point in Matthew 7. Now just a few verses later, he gives us a very clear command to discern, to distinguish between things that are real. The command not to condemn or belittle or push aside remains in effect, but he clearly calls us to be fruit inspectors. In one important sense, we are to examine the fruit 
not to make ourselves more important than another person or to think of ourselves as better than the other, but instead to understand, to see what is going on. And this is both in the hearts of our brothers and sisters, but it's also in our own hearts. Because probably everybody in this room knows that the first and perhaps most important thing that you can do to love someone is to understand them, is to take the time to listen, to pay attention, to observe and see what is going on in their hearts so that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of the Father, you can make a difference, that you can do something for them. But we must speak the truth in love once we have examined and understood what is going on. And we inspect the fruit in our own hearts so that we can know that we are saved. You know, I've, I've had many people ask me this question. Pastor, am I saved? And one of the things that I always come back to is, well, the Holy Spirit tells me, gives me authority to know that I know that I am saved. He has given me that witness. And the Holy Spirit through the scriptures has given me tests fruit inspecting criteria that I can give to you so that you can know. Because again, I'm not a judge. I'm not the one who makes the final decision on who gets into heaven and hell. Amen for that. But when we take the time to inspect the fruit in our lives, we'll come up with questions like, are the people speaking into my life Godly people worth imitating? Or am I paying more attention to Dr. Phil and Oprah and others? Do I see in the people who are around me hearts that are reflecting grace? Or is it judgment and nitpicking? Or is it the attitude of pushing others away? Do I see them and myself having victory over sin? Or at least growing in the right direction. These are questions you and I must ask ourselves if we are to grow in godliness and to help those that near ones, those neighbors that the Lord has put in our hearts, in our paths, so that we can be like him. Matthew chapter 7 frees us to be the kind of people who can look hard into our hearts and see if we are the men and women God has created us to be. Jesus continues, and he wants us to be humble. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the great day, the day of judgment, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let me tell you, that is not what you want to hear on that day. You want, by the grace of God, through the cleansing blood of Christ, to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. But in light of that, look again at verse 22. 
Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? How many here have prophesied in Jesus' name, told the future? Have, have we not cast out demons in your name? How many here have been the one to cast out demons in the name of Jesus? How, how about have done many mighty works? How many here have, have done miracles and, and seen miracles at their hands? Oh my goodness, this verse should make you shake in your boots. You should really consider this. This should be something that you take time to think about. Jesus is not talking about the average garden variety unbelievers. What is Jesus talking about? What, what is he getting at? Listen, the point is that we need to be the kind of people that do what we do because we belong to Jesus. I think that Jesus is intentionally making a hyperbole here. He's intentionally exaggerating his point because we do things like, well, I visited X number of people. Well, I gave X number amount of money. Well, I did X number of hours of service. Aren't I a good person? And Jesus wants to disabuse us of that. He says, wait, 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 wait. Come to me after you've done 30 miracles or so and then see. And even then the miracles themselves don't get you into heaven. It's not anything we do. But I suspect, mostly because I know my own heart, I suspect that more often than we care to admit, we have kind of a works mentality. We have a kind of, well, I deserve this because I did that. And Jesus here in talking to us as believers, remember, I'm not talking to non-believers here. I'd be saying something different. But for us believers, Jesus in these words is making it clear, there ain't nothing you've done that's going to get you into heaven. There ain't nothing you've done that's going to get you to deserve some special grace of God. Ouch, that hurts. You, my friends, my brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. You don't earn points to get specific favors from God. You live by grace through faith, and that is a good thing because when you and I are living by grace through faith, we are free to take a hard look at our hearts and, and see where we have turned away from our Lord and Savior. And he gets one step even clearer just in case we've missed it, starting in verse 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words, he's talking about the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall 
because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Several of you, like me, have worked in various construction trades and you know that the foundation is the most important part of a building. In fact, depending on where you're at, the foundation takes longer to build than all the rest of the building put together. The foundation, without a good foundation, no matter how well built the rest of the structure is, it will be subject continually to damage and eventually just flat premature destruction. Somebody will come and hang a red tag on it and you're done. So, on what foundation do we build our lives? The most important building that we have. Okay, I know, you're good Sunday school graduates. Graduates, It's the word of God, Amen. But specifically, I think that there's some truth here that Jesus is saying, build your lives on these words of mine. And that's why I tell new believers, I say, look, go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read one chapter a day. If you are not right now, if you don't have a daily plan of putting God's word in your heart, this is what I encourage you to do. I encourage you to pick up in Matthew chapter one. And Benji's gonna say amen to me in just a second. And I want you to read all those hard to pronounce names. <laughs> I told you, I'm a prophet. No. <laughs> and you'll get to Matthew chapter 18 and you'll read, you'll read the story of Mary. But take one chapter a day. If you are not doing a Bible reading daily, this is what I recommend you do because Jesus specifically says here, go to my words. Now, I think it applies to the entire Bible, even Numbers and Leviticus. Okay, I, I knew there was an amen coming. But get into God's words. Jesus makes it clear here. He doesn't say storms may come. They are already on the way. The storms of your life have already done brood and they're coming at you. What are you counting on to get through the storms of life? I wonder how many of us can, will say, oh, the word of God, but we're not making that part of our daily lives so that when it is taken away by age, by blindness, by any external force, are we still going to have the word of God in our hearts and in our minds so that it will protect us through the storms? Put your hope fully in the Lord who is willing and able to meet your needs through his word, trusting his promises to give you grace in your time of need. Because this is where we discover that Jesus frees us. He enables us to be able to look in our hearts and still say, praise Jesus. In spite of the sin in my heart, I know that he is for me and not against me. And the Sermon on the Mount wraps up 
And I imagine some think that this is just kind of closing words. But this is a hugely important aspect of the sermon. Don't miss it. Verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Then and today, one of the things that people who are scribes or doctors or professors, one of the biggest things they like to do is quote people. And their authority comes from being able to put as many people on their sides as they can. Jesus, on the other hand, demonstrated that he had authority, not by quoting people, not by showing he had read all the right books or watched all the right DVDs. Jesus demonstrated he had authority by piercing the heart of the people who were listening. Jesus proved that he had authority by accurately pointing at those things in our hearts we don't want people to know. We don't want people to touch us there because it hurts. It feels like something's in your eye and you want to get it out. Jesus proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that he understands the way you and I tick. Man, woman, Jew, Gentile, slave, free man, rich man, barbarian. He knows us. And he understands the world in which we live. That is why Jesus is the smartest, the wisest, the best teacher, counselor, doctor, lawyer that there ever was because he gets us. He demonstrated his authority because more than anyone and everyone, he understands. And that by the way, is the only legitimate source of authority anybody could possibly have. So because Jesus has this authority to speak to our hearts, because he has then given us the grace that we need so that we can examine our heart truly, he has made us free. So that as we look at ourselves, we don't have to wallow in despair. We don't have to cry in our beer, so to speak. Jesus sets us free to take a hard look at our lives. Now, as I said a moment ago, many of you are good Sunday school graduates, and I, I wonder if, if some of you have had this one particular passage found in the New Testament bouncing around on the inside of your ears. There is a potentially fatal argument about everything that I have just said to believers. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, With me, it is a, I love this, very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. 
Now, if you just look on the surface, this passage seems to undercut everything I said. But let me give you at least two reasons why I don't think it does. Remember that we've been careful to draw a distinction in the New Testament between this idea of judging, condemning, or belittling, or calling somebody an idiot on the road in front of us. Oops. And this other idea that is found in the New Testament of discerning, of fruit inspecting, of understanding based upon what we learn in God's word, based upon what he has revealed to us through our experience. And this we must do. Paul tells us at the beginning when we were talking about the fact that we must examine ourselves in 2 Corinthians verse chapter 13. We must say, why am I doing or thinking or saying this? But, Paul says in very clear language, you must not judge yourself, condemn yourself, belittle yourself, or condemn others. So I don't think that they're talking about the same thing because here Paul keeps using this idea of judging. But the second reason I say that this doesn't undercut everything I say, in fact supports what I've said, is that I cannot measure even my own motives because I don't even know all the things that goes on my, in my heart. Your heart and mine is deceptive and is desperately wicked. Who can know it? But we have the mind of Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We have the mind of Christ who frees us to enable us to be the kind of people who can look into our hearts and discern by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do this and be free. So, Jesus frees me to take a look at what is going on in terms of how I'm reacting, how I am living in light of his grace, and thereby trusting in the promises of God. And one of my favorite promises in this regard is found in Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work in you will be faithful he is faithful. He'll keep his promise. And in this case, what is this promise? The fact that he began a good work in you and he's going to make sure it gets done by the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. I would sing the old Sunday school song, but I'm embarrassed enough already, so I won't. It is because... Jesus has given us this promise. It is because he has given us the entire Sermon on the Mount that you can be free to, to look into and then ask for forgiveness for that crud that is inside of you and then praise Jesus that he has taken care of it. He will see that his good grace, his good glorious grace will be done in your lives. You can trust Jesus to be free, to look into your soul and give glory because he has forgiven you. Amen. Lord Jesus, we know that you are a great and gracious God and we trust that you will indeed work in us as we read throughout our lives the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of what you have given us 
and become by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the men and the women you have created us to be. Bless us now so that we will rejoice in you and so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.